Hi, I'm Caitlin Prest, and I am here in your ear to tell you about a very incredible new show called Asking For It. Asking For It is a darkly comedic series that follows a queer femme singer whose history of violence finds her no matter how many times she runs away. It has an original soundtrack, and it'll make you laugh, cry, and feel a little bit less alone. Asking for it. Subscribe now. This is a CBC Podcast. I keep trying to get memories, a whole bunch, and sometimes I, I find a memory. just hard to find. Hey, I'm AC Rowe. This is The Dog Project. And today's story starts with Dennis Bob. Yeah, I first heard Dennis speak at the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. I was watching some of the sessions online and was quite moved by his story. That is regular Doc Project contributor, Megan Mast. After hearing him speak, Megan reached out to Dennis. They started talking. Then, around the same time, Megan met someone else, Gina Lang. I'm at the point in my life, I'm old. I'm not going to be here that much longer. And I don't care what other people think about what I'm saying. And they need to hear it. That's how I feel about it now. Gina and Dennis don't know each other. But over the past eight years, as Megan got to know each of them, she discovered that they have something in common. They both went to the same school on Vancouver Island. The Alberni Indian Residential School operated between 1900 and the late 1960s, but continued on as a student residence until 1973. And students came from all across Vancouver Island as far away even as mainland BC. Not a lot is left of the school. Most of its buildings were torn down by survivors a few years back, in 2009, when the land was repossessed by the New Chalnuth Tribal Council. There's the New Chalnuth Tribal Council office. And there's a large totem pole. And then in the back, there's sort of a rundown-looking office building, which is the only remaining building of the former school that's intact. And then there's a number of um, pieces of art commemorating the survivors. Um, But what I didn't realize is that there were ruins of the former school still, still present in the forest behind the parking lot and going down the hill. And it's quite hidden because the the trees are thick. I'd been there a couple times. And then when Dennis took me, he showed me everything that was in the forest and it was, everything was still there, just in ruins. You don't usually hear about people wanting to return to the site of their trauma. But that is exactly what Gina and Dennis are setting out to do, to face down old memories by making new ones. They're not going to control me anymore. They're not going to control this aspect of my life. And I've got that attitude about everything right now. Today on the show, we've got two stories about healing through resistance. Coming up, a conversation about reimagining O Canada that is starting with Indigenous youth, and inviting everyone. And I think if Indigenous people continue to perform acts of resistance and then our allies join us, then it leaves less room for people uh, to push back against that resistance and maybe they start changing things for the better. But first... 
Gina and Dennis both still live about five to ten minutes away from the grounds of the former residential school. And over the past 60 years, they've both worked hard to reclaim their lives. Heads up. This story, it deals with accounts of abuse. But it doesn't stay there. This is why I speak out so that our our young people will never have to go through this again. That the world will never, ever allow something like what happened to happen again to any human being. Here's Gina. My name is Stacy Georgina Lang. I'm Euchuklisset, and we're like 24 miles down the canal from Pearl Burnie. I think I had just turned seven when I went to the school. My first day there was really bad. I had two beatings in like two days, the first beatings of my life. The first one was for speaking my language, and I didn't know we weren't supposed to. And the second was not making my bed. And your bed had to be made so that when the supervisor came along, she'd bounce a quarter off of it or something. And if it didn't bounce, you were severely beaten and told to remake it. And I had no idea about that when I first got there. So I got up and I didn't know I had to make the bed. Nobody told me. There was no instructions. You were, you were expected to do the things that were expected from you and without being told. And the punishment was always severe. So we'd have to make our bed and then we had to line up at the foot of our bed and march out down the stairs. Five floors up, we'd have to march downstairs, line up in the playroom and then march in and stand behind our chair in the dining room and then sit down when the bell rang and uh, eat our meager breakfast. And usually had worms in our mush. I mean, I didn't eat them the first time. And uh, I learned later that you take them out and you eat it. After a while, it didn't even matter that those worms were in here because you were just so hungry you'd eat anything. It was so different than home where we could have whatever we wanted for breakfast and we could have as much as we wanted and we could have our brothers and sisters sitting around the table and my mother and father and, you know, the dog and the cat and we had a normal household and we used to go outside and play and we would play at the table and talk at the table and we weren't allowed to do any of that stuff at the residential school. We didn't have a normal life. We had our uniform and a couple changes of clothes and we all looked alike. We looked exactly alike. And I basically, I think we were taught to think alike and do alike. Everything we did was alike. Our nights at the residential school were terrifying. I don't know how I ever slept when I was in residential school. I went to sleep in fear. And uh, while I was awake, I was constantly wondering whether, you know, I always want to say our offender because there was four four of us girls that used to be molested by this man and we used to get sent to his bedroom at nighttime by the supervisor. She knew about it. But instead of seeing us as little children, innocent, she called us little pigs and sent us down to his room with that smirk on her face. I'll never forget that look on her face like she knew what was going to happen. I sleep with my door closed, always. And um, 
and I'm still doing a defense move right now. I'm sitting in a corner where I can see all the doors and windows. And that's one of the things that, you know, if you're a survivor, that's basically what you do. When I left the residential school, I was completely closed up. I had shut down. I was living in fear. Um, I had no idea of who I was or what I was, or I had nothing that was mine. I didn't speak for a whole year after I left the residential school. I remember my father shaking me by my shoulders and telling me to talk to him. And when, when I finally did start, it was just to say yes or no to my mother and no one else. If I went to a restaurant, I couldn't even order a hamburger. Even when I met my husband, he would order for me. I wouldn't even order. The first time I ordered a burger on my own, I was very uh, self-conscious and I was very, I felt very weak and I felt um, as if I would be put down or or maybe even hit for speaking up when I shouldn't. And um, my burger came and, and my drink came and it was like, what happened? <laughs> it was so strange. And I ate my burger, it was like, it was wonderful. And I realized, oh, maybe I can do this. And now if I order something and it's not what I want, I'll send it back. <laughs> That's how much I've changed. You know, I'll, I'll make a complaint about it and I'll say something about it. What happened at the residential school, it, it overtook my life for a long time. And almost every aspect of my life was like that, learning to be an individual and learning how to, how to deal with life and uh, not having someone run it for me and be in control of every aspect of my life. When I left residential school, it was so strange. 16 years old, and I, I get out of bed and uh, look at my bed, and and I'm about to start making it from habit, and I, and I look at it, and I go, no way. And I never made the bed again until about, what, six years ago? Is it? Yeah. And now I, I'll make my bed anytime I want to. If I don't want to, I won't. If if I If I want to, I will. So how long did you not make the bed for? Holy cow. I left when I was 16, and um, I guess I was 65 or something when I when I made the bed. My husband used to complain about it all the time. He used to always tell me that I'm, I should make the bed once in a while, and I basically told him, you can make it yourself. And, uh, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, he did, and then finally one day I made it. Cool, and I figured... They're not going to control me anymore. They're not going to control this aspect of my life. So I do it or I don't now. And I've got that attitude about everything right now. I should have had it since since I was born, but I didn't. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Everyone had the same bed, the same mattress, the same sheets, the same pillows, the same blankets and everything. It was all the same, exactly identical. And uh, now I always try and make it different than others. I get the most off things you could possibly find. <laughs> so if it's homemade, I love it even more. 
Yeah. I made lots of blankets when, when my kids were young and I made them for them. Different, all different. Yep. If the sheets don't match, I don't care. The pillowcases, right, even right now, they're different. <laughs> I, I just don't care anymore. I just, I just make it the way I want it and I enjoy doing it. <laughs> So maybe say your name and then um, who you are. Where My you name are. is Dennis Fob. I'm from Pocochin, First Nation, which is in Vancouver Island near Sydney. But I was born in Chilliwack and took off to Colorado. How old are you? Oh, 59, 59 plus tax. I'm living in Port Alberni, Vancouver Island, near the residential school. The belly of the beast. I could never see Port Alberni, I could never see residential school, but here I am in Port Alberni and near the residential school. And I'm talking about it. Yeah, I didn't want to come here at all. I did. I did. I felt something not good, and but when you fall in love, that's what happens. You have to follow her around everywhere. And and Cindy, could you tell me about the first time that you met Dennis? Mm -hmm. The first time I met Dennis was when he walked into the room at the trauma program. It's out in Laylam in Nanaimo, and I remember sitting there, and I was listening to people's stories and Dennis came started his and they were asking him questions about his daughter and he said anybody touches my daughter I'm going to kill him I sat right up I said that got my attention right away and I said I'm going to meet this guy and see what what all all that is about because no one just says that and that program was pretty intense for both of us because we had to write a lot and he was writing about his lemon and mostly about his lemon i was five years old when i first got to Port Alberni residential school my brother and my sisters were already there and i seen my sister she said, Dennis, you're too young to be here. Well, you're supposed to be six when you get there, but I was five, so they kept me in the infirmary for quite a long time. I think way too long. Nobody liked the infirmary, and I know why. Because there was a room back there, and that was, that was his room. And he had a room outside, and he had a room downstairs. But when I was five, that's when, that's when I hated that plant guy. It was that lemon he gave me that I hated after. But if I taste a little bit of it, then it comes back, triggers, hit hard. I don't know, it was just disgusting. To, once that taste goes in your mouth, once you taste something, it brings you back to that pervert, what he done. But... <clears throat> That's why I don't think I'll ever have lemon again. Just gross. When I first 
he first started talking to us about that. And my my imagination went to, okay, so this little boy, he's only five years old, had to endure that from an older person. He really got grabbed everybody's attention because he was brave enough to tell his story. And uh, that's that's the first time I met him, was what he was telling his story. At a healing place, I was sitting in a chair and he put the elder man in front of me. And I told him, you can't put him in front of me, I'm gonna punch him in his face. He said, no, you can't do that. So, well, you better move him because I will punch him in his face. So they moved him. And, yeah, I can't. I don't think I can still have that. People sitting in front of me, guys. I didn't like a man to cut my hair. I didn't like a man to be anything like that. But I have to get used to it. So if now if a man cuts my hair, I'm, I still don't like it but I have to get it done and can't punch him in his face for something he didn't do. Residential school, you can't cry. You can't show it if you do. Juvenile detention, you can't cry. Prison, you can't cry. But after I went to that treatment center, I had an iceberg in my chest and after the tears came out, the iceberg in my chest was melted and came out of my eyes and after that I was a whole different person. I had a smile on my face and I keep that smile and I say hello to everybody before I couldn't do that. Can you talk about how many times a week you come up here to the site? Whenever I can, like anytime I can come up here, I'll be here looking, scraping away, looking for stuff. He likes to go up to the residential school. He likes to look around for marbles and I think he's really digging hard on trying to find out what's making him making him go back and do all this and help him remember, help him forget, I don't know, but that's what he does. He goes right back to the crime scene. I got that milk carton from the residential school too. <laughs> the milk jug we had every morning. The one that's on the windowsill? Yeah. So there's a, a milk jug on the windowsill that you got from the school. You I found... got a brick laying down there from the building too and I wanted to pull out the, a bed because there's a whole bunch of beds down there. And I said, oh, I wonder if I can take it. I don't know if it's, if I can. I don't know if it's going to be bad luck or I don't know. I just feel something's not right, but soon there will be. I can take it and show everybody I got a bed. And I got a tray, but it was busted. I keep looking. I don't know why, but... I'm looking for something. 
what do you think you're looking for? Is it is there something in particular, or you're not sure? No, I, I keep trying to get memories. A whole bunch, and sometimes I I find a memory. Just hard to find. So there's uh, looks like the ruins of an old building made of concrete, and there's all kinds of rocks and debris, and um, it's all kind of covered. Hey, almost like it collapsed. This yeah, is maybe this is the building they pushed over that the residential school is all that big concrete that was. I'm still trying to find a sign that says Alberni, <laughs> which I probably won't. I know Plint's house was right here or right there. I know he took me there, so that's what I'm trying to figure out. I think it, well, I think it is that, because I remember the basement door and the basement window. But he took me here and messed up my life. But there inside the building, it's called the infirmary, where I stayed for a long time, and he had a room back there too. And then there's a basement out there, he had a room there too, so that's why I, I grew up the way I grew up, or hating everybody. But yeah, this is still here, and I take pictures of it, even though I hate it. Hmm. But yeah. What? Why do you think you do that? Uh, well, nobody talks about what happened to them, but I want pick people to see. How, once you see a picture, they'll get a flashback. I remember now. But. I, Everything I have, I'll take a picture of it so I can help the other people and get the memories back. Because when I see a picture, something clicks in my head. Somebody showed me a picture of here, so I remember that. I used to play marbles there. And that building right there, that's where the playground was. That's where I got a stitch in my head. Because I jumped off the swing the furthest and I slammed my head on the pavement. <laughs> and I left my mark. My sister blanked everything out. My other sister blanked everything out. And when they, when I show a picture, they remember. They, they get something clicked back in their head. Didn't talk about it, but then she, oh, I remember now. So yeah, that, something not good, but they gotta get it out. So you wanna help other people yeah. remember? Yep. Yeah. I think that's what I'm here for. Dennis and Gina were at the Port Alberni School at different times, but share common experiences. Over the intervening years, they've both found ways to face the trauma and regain agency in their lives. It's a small community here, but while the two have heard of each other, they've never actually met. So today, Gina is joining Dennis on the former grounds of the school for the very first time. As Gina and I drive up together, she points things out along the way. Oh yeah, we used to, well, according to their words, sneak out of the residential school. We were running away, actually. And uh, we would run all along this road here. We used to dive into the ditch to hide if there was a car coming. (laughs) And we used to sneak to my grandmother's house, which is about two miles, I guess, from the residential school and stay there for the afternoon and we always knew we had to go back and we always knew we would get punished when we got back but it was worth it sometimes we'd run that way 
we didn't know where we were going going that way but we used to hide and pick berries and stuff on the way and we'd end up back at school again every time but we got a little bit of freedom for a little bit and it was well worth all the strappings and beatings we got for it and uh, this was always the most dreaded part of the whole trip was coming up this driveway going towards the residential school the building was five floors high and there used to be a holly tree where the totem pole is. I guess the totem pole is better, but I love that holly tree. I thought it represented them really well. All prickly and untouchable. <laughs> Hello. Are you the famous Gina? <laughs> Hi. Hello. It's nice to meet you. <laughs> the, the big kids were... Where that truck is, there's a there was a building right there for the bigger kids. Oh, the seniors. That's where my sister was, and I was over here in the main dorm, one of the dorm one, I guess. Was there a garden the way that there is now? Yeah, there used to be a garden in front of the classrooms. Yeah, it was the one nice thing you could see when you're being marched like little German soldiers to your classroom. <laughs> We were children and we were treated like we were soldiers. The discipline was like that. And that's the hill we used to sneak off into to go forging for food. <laughs> there used to be a quince tree down there in a pear tree and we'd eat them worms and all. We were always that hungry. I tell you, we were hungry. <laughs> yeah. Gina's memories are clear while Dennis's need help surfacing. He takes a moment to head down the hill, searching for more clues. You said that there's beds in here yeah, as well? Yeah, the beds are in the back. I have pulled some up. There are piles of debris, including bricks and scores of tiny metal bed frames. Yeah, it was, could have been my mom's, my uncle's, but could have been mine. Maybe I'll bring them up today. Can you describe them? They're rusted. Now one looks like they've been under the, underwater. But they were buried. That's why I pulled them out slowly, because I want to put one together for somebody. Dennis decides that today is the day that he will finally recover some of those beds. Uh, yeah, I can grab them as long as I hold. Yeah, go ahead. I'll come behind you. He walks his finds up the hill to show Gina. You can have one of those, I'll take one. Really? Oh my God. Oh my goodness. That is so awesome. Dennis has also found an old brick that's still in good condition. Can I have that too? Yeah. Thank you. <laughs> oh my goodness. I can do with it what I want. It's not got control of me. Yeah. This is awesome. Thank you so much. <laughs> That's going to have a special place in my new home. I'm going to make my bed because I want to, <laughs> not because I have to, so I won't get a beating, but I'll make my bed. I'll just uh, flip the back end because I always have my feet sticking out and pull my sheet down pull it over to the edge 
and uh, tuck it under the pillow. Grab my blanket, pull it over, make it nice and straight. And I don't care if you can bounce a quarter off of it or not. And I don't care if it's really nice or not. My daughter, granddaughter, makes it really nice. But me, I just throw it together. That's good enough for me. <laughs> it's not perfect, but that's the way I like it. I never planned anything when I was in residential school. There was no plan. My day was taken. I, I didn't own myself when I was in residential school. They owned every aspect of me. They owned me, they owned my body, they owned my thoughts, my feelings. But they didn't own my spirit. I've always had that. After I got out, I didn't like the world because I don't know, I felt ugly, but then I'm here, so I'm here to help. I'm, that's why I take a picture to click in, get the memories, because people don't have that memory. They blanked it out. They're older, they still don't have that memory, but when they see that picture, people say, oh, I remember that, and say, it makes me happy and brings some memories back. It just gives me my strength back. Yeah, there's lots of memories still, lots, and I'm going to get them all. Gina Lang, Dennis Bob, and Cindy Keatla. Their story was produced by Megan Mast with Allison Cook. It was inspired by an article Megan originally wrote for the Taiyi out of British Columbia. Dennis Bob says the man who abused him at the school when he was five years old was Arthur Henry Plint. Plint died in prison in 2003. He'd been sentenced to 11 years in 1995 for sexually abusing 16 boys at the school. There is a national residential school support line for survivors and anyone else who needs help in connection with residential schools. Their 24-hour number is 1-866-925-4400. When Gina and Dennis returned to the grounds of the former school, they were welcomed by the new Chalnuth Tribal Council, who include 14 First Nations and repossessed the land back in 2009. This is Ken Watts, chief counselor of the Tesha First Nation. We want to welcome you. Whatever you need to do in our territory to help your heart and your spirit heal, and our chiefs want to want to welcome you with open arms. You're protected here to heal. Unfortunately, we never asked for this building and what happened here to happen in our backyard, but we're trying to do the best we can to create a better space for people and survivors and other people to come back. Uh, We're actually building a basketball court over here for our kids, for our kids to turn around and make this a positive place for everybody. Gina and Dennis each received an orange shirt and a blanket. Everyone shared a meal. And there was cultural support on site, as well as singing. This is Tesha First Nation elected councillor Ed Ross, welcoming Gina and Dennis by singing Greeting the New Day. It was written by Vern Williams, a member of the Haida. Ed says Vern gifted the song to all New Chalnuth people who've become disconnected from their culture through no choice of their own. Hey. Yeah.
can see a photo essay, including shots of this incredible welcome on our website. We're at cbc.ca slash docproject. I'm AC Rowe, and this is The Doc Project, with two stories about healing through resistance. I'm Jonathan Goldstein, host of Wiretap. Each week you're invited to listen in on my telephone conversations, whether funny, sad, wistful, or even slightly strange. You never know just what you might hear on Wiretap. I mean, I knew you had a show. I just, I just didn't think that people actually listened to it. Howard, That's you... the breath of your genius, Jonathan. It's not just that you're funny, but you can be cripplingly, poignantly depressing. The Wiretap Archives, available on CBC Listen, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and wherever you get your podcasts. When I hear O Canada, I'm just like, oh, here we go again. I started singing for O Canada in grade five. Skyla Hart is 15 years old. She's a grade 10 student in Winnipeg. And her way of protesting has caught the attention of people around the world. We had a young man from Australia write her a letter in support of Skyla, like all the way in Australia. Skyla gets support letters to her school weekly from people from all over the world that have heard about her story. This is Skyla's mom. Buju and Maganatuk. Um, what that means is hello relatives. Um, my name is White Eagle Woman. I'm from the Bear Clan. My territory that I come from is in Nisichawasik, which means Nelson House in the Cree language. I'm also known as Raven Hart, and I am the mother of Skyla Hart, the youth that chooses to sit for the national anthem of O Canada. If you're not familiar, across the country, schools play O Canada in the morning. I remember at my high school, it was pumped through tinny speakers. If you were late to class, you were expected to hold still in the hallway, stand it out. And only after the last notes rattled through could you scurry to your seat. This is a ritual that Skyla questions. People don't know the origin of that song. And people don't know what what they're standing for. I just wanted to take a seat for our people and take a stand for my culture. Skyla sat down for the anthem for years at school without any issues. Until this current school year, when, for the first time... A teacher challenged what she was doing. My teacher was, like, looking at me and, like, hand gesturing for me to get up. I was like, I don't stand for Canada, like, respectfully. She was like, okay, like, then go stand in the hallway. Which, at the time, like, I never understood why I had to go stand in the hallway. If I would go stand in the hallway, I would still be standing. This is the story of the history of a song and a 15-year-old who won't stand for it. Doc Project producer Tanara McLean will take it from here. In that moment of confusion about having to stand out in the hallway, Skyla Hart was trying to process everything that was going on. Other kids in the class were looking at her and whispering, and she was directly challenging the adult and authority figure in the room. Of course, I listened to my teacher because I didn't want to disrespect her, so I went to go stand in the hallway and she like was talking to me outside and she's like I respect why you're not standing for a candle but she like didn't give me like 
She didn't give me an opportunity to tell her why I didn't. So I was sitting in the hallway by my class and another teacher like came outside and looked at me and like screamed at me to get up. And I just like politely said, like, I don't stand for Canada. And they're like, oh, okay. After that, Skyla went back to class without incident. But during her next class, the vice principal knocked on the door, saying he needed to talk to Skyla. I didn't know what was happening. And I was like, confused. I was like, why do I have to talk to like you? Just because I didn't, I wanted to stand up for what's right for my culture. And then he got upset, but like not at me. He got upset at the teachers because they called him and made it seem like I was like doing something wrong, which made me really upset. And then I told him I was about to tell him why I didn't sign up for Canada. And then he said he already knew. I was like, felt so valid because he he like knew like all the trauma that we've been through. I didn't even have to explain it to him. Since she was a baby, Skyla has been surrounded by family members instilling lessons and wisdom about her lineage and her rightful place as an Indigenous person in this land. I was in ceremony, like, for my culture, in my mom's womb. And when I got out of my mom's womb, I was in a sweat lodge constantly. We are really fortunate as an Indigenous family to grow up our whole life in our lodges, in our ceremonies, learning about our culture. Ravenheart passed down a sense of belonging to her children. She says that's a gift that was passed down to her by the women who came before in her family. My mother was a residential school survivor, as well as my grandmother and great-grandmother. And When my mother came out of residential school, she decided that that trauma was going to stop with her. So what she did was she decided to go and relearn her culture. And when I say relearn, I mean remember, because our way of life is written in our DNA. It's passed on from generation to generation. It's really generational wealth. My mother was a very spiritual woman. She practiced her culture, taught it to her children, grandchildren, passed it on to our whole family, and really was the beacon of light for our family in terms of healing from all of the oppression and trauma that we had experienced as a family in residential school. So I am very fortunate that I grew up in my lodges knowing my culture. Raven says that immersion in her family's teachings and traditions, that's at the root of her daughter's choice to sit for O Canada. It's an act of peaceful resistance against colonist systems. Skyla isn't the first to do this in her family. Her mom remembers doing it herself as a child. When I went to school at Dufferin School when I was in elementary school, that's in Winnipeg here. I never stood for O Canada and our teachers supported us because we were a predominantly Indigenous community or uh, Indigenous community school. It wasn't a cultural school in any way, but it was the majority of children in my school were Indigenous. And I remember my teacher asking me, why are you sitting for O Canada? And I told her 
that I'm sitting for it because I believe in my culture more. I believe in my way of life more. That was my answer probably in about grade two or three. For some reason, even at that age, I knew that that song was not beneficial to me. And I knew that it didn't feel right in my heart and in my spirit. It doesn't feel right to Skyla either. She also doesn't feel right about the land acknowledgement read before the anthem plays on Mondays at her school. As we start the week, we acknowledge that River East Collegiate is on Treaty 1 territory, the traditional lands of the Anishinaabe, Cree, Ojakree, Dakota, and Diné peoples, and the homeland of the Métis Nation. When they say, like, our home, Treaty 1 land, I just think, like, those are just words and not actions whatsoever. And then they go on to the song and they say, like, our home native land. They push aside our needs. They push aside the land that we were supposed to take care of and push us onto reserves. That, till this day, some of them have no clean water. Skyla says it's not just the words. One of her main issues with the song, O Canada, is the man who composed the music. He, like, traveled around Canada, and he did blackface. That composer was a musician named Calixa Lavallee, and the song was first performed in 1880. Before composing the music, Calixa Lavallee spent years performing with a blackface minstrel troupe across Canada and the United States. Minstrel shows, considered entertainment at the time, consisted of white cast members painting their faces with black makeup and acting out skits that depicted people of African descent as buffoonish, dim-witted, and lazy people. The shows exploited stereotypes to an extreme, positioning black people as a simple and inferior race. I didn't want to stand for someone that was racist and traveled around Canada doing blackface. The original lyrics to O Canada were actually first only written and performed in French, while God Save the Queen and the Maple Leaf Forever were more popular in English communities. It wasn't until the early 1900s that English lyrics started to appear, with many different versions competing for top billing. The current version we have today was adopted from lyrics first written in 1908 by Robert Stanley Weir. His original version had lines like, Ruler supreme, who hearest humble prayer, hold our dominion within thy loving care. Another line reads, From east to western sea, our own beloved native land, our true north strong and free. Those lyrics are gone now. Weir revised his own lyrics more than once, ultimately settling on pretty much the version we know today. 
But what's left is still problematic to Skyla and her mom, Raven. There's this one verse in here. It says, true patriot love in all of us command with glowing hearts. We see thee rise the true nor strong and free from far and wide. O Canada, we stand on guard for thee. When I think about who they're standing on guard for, I think about the demise of Indigenous people and what they had to go through for Canada to be what it is today. That um, Canada was built on the on the bones of Indigenous people. That, you know, Indigenous people in this land had to be starved. They had to be neglected. They had to be assaulted. Everything from emotional, mental, physical, and sexual assault um, in order for Canada to be what it is today. And so when I look at the riches of settler society in Canada and I look at the struggles that my people face every day, I think about that. And that makes me very, it upsets me. O Canada was only declared the official national anthem in 1980. That's just 42 years ago. In its short history, people from various groups have been calling for changes to O Canada. The song has been accused of not separating church and state because it references the Christian God. Feminists said the song was sexist because it had only male pronouns, and that challenge forced change. The line was legally changed in 2018. Instead of the original, in all thy sons command, it became in all of us command. This perspective of who the words represent is something researcher Rob Houle thinks about. He heard about Skyla's story, and he identifies with what she's saying. Maybe it's time to have a debate on changing other words in the anthem to more accurately reflect the history of Canada. My name is Rob Houle. I am from the Swan River First Nation. I am a researcher, writer, um, and now a law student at Kamloops, BC. I have a long history of being involved in Indigenous issues and uh, trying to tell a better perspective of Canada's history and Indigenous contributions to that history. Rob and his family also sit during O Canada. Well, for me as an Indigenous person, um, I recognize that we have our own songs in our in our different tribes and our different cultures. Um, I come from the Cree uh, community, so there are, are songs there, like the honor song and the flag song that we sing to honor our, our veterans and our elders and people like that and in positions of stature. So I place those as a, as a greater emphasis than the Canadian uh, national anthem. Rob sent me a link to the honor song he's talking about. It's being performed by the Northern Cree singers at a powwow a few years ago. While thinking about the most recent change to make the anthem gender neutral, something else occurred to Rob. There's a section um, that says our home and native land. But what if we changed it to something like our home on native land so that people could understand exactly where they're living, that all of this land, all of this 
this Canada, it's all on Indigenous land and on Native land and whether or not it was stolen or subverted or entered into through treaty, there is an obligation on, on who owns and who are the original owners of the land. And a small change like that could do a great deal to help people better understand where we are as Canadians and how we've come to be where we are and, and hopefully lead to better conversations around what it means for them to be living on Native land and what it means for them to be a neighbor on Native land. This is a concept Toronto City Council actually proposed to the federal government back in 1990. Council agreed to recommend that the Canadian government make changes so the song would be gender neutral and also change the line home and native land to instead say home and cherished land out of respect for Indigenous people who are indeed native to this land. But Rob says he's not waiting for government to make changes before he does. If people were to actively just change, maybe maybe next time they sing it, maybe they try it out and they sing it a little bit differently, maybe it becomes some sort of movement, I don't know. Skyla is thinking even bigger and wants something even more broad to represent the Canada she's growing up in. I would really like if they, like, made a song that had, like, a meaning from every culture that lives in Canada. Indigenous person, like, says something or, like, sing something. All races that live in Canada, they should just all, like, make a song together. I think that would be beautiful. At 15, Skyla is thinking really hard about how her actions today are changing the world she lives in and her own experience as an Indigenous person. Rob says this kind of peaceful protest he sees in young people is encouraging. If Indigenous people continue to perform acts of resistance and then our allies join us, then it leaves less room for people uh, to push back against that resistance. And maybe they start to go with the flow of changing things for the better. And it's important that everyone take even just small acts of resistance to challenge the status quo and to start to engage in these conversations with each other so that uh, we can all learn a little bit more and we can start to push back on some of these things that we've just continued to do just because they've become commonplace. Maybe they don't need to be there anymore. Maybe we can have different traditions, different practices. After word got out about Skyla's experience at the start of the school year... Her mom, Raven, says her story went around the globe. Skyla is empowering not just Indigenous youth, but Indigenous people all over the world, whether you're Indigenous from Australia, whether you're Indigenous from Kenya. She's inspiring Indigenous people all over the world to go against the grain and to stand up for what they believe in and to stand against oppression stand against racism, stand against those direct assaults on their their minds, their hearts, and their bodies. Skyla is very special. Her spirit name is Michibichichuis Esquasis, and what that means is little tornado child. So Skyla was born to go against the grain. Skyla was born to make change. 
they say that whenever a tornado hits somewhere, you know, that it tears everything apart and forces people to start over again and to rethink and to rebuild. And I think that's exactly what Skyla's doing is she's empowering people to rethink and rebuild, you know, these systems that are oppressive and these systems that do not work for people of color and indigenous children. Every indigenous person should have a voice of what they don't like or like not standing up pro Canada. And lots of people just are just used to being oppressed for years that they're scared to do what's right for their culture and what's right for a lot of other people. And it's so important for young people to teach like other generations ahead and like my mom's generation that if a kid could do it, then you can do it. Skyla Hart, Ravenheart, and Rob Houle. That doc was produced and mixed by Tanera McLean. It was edited by Sherry O'KK. We invited Skyla's vice principal to be a part of this documentary, but a communications representative from the school division declined on his behalf, saying they can't talk about personal student matters. In an email, they said, in part, River East Transcona School Division offers our complete support to Skyla regarding their decision to honor their indigenous culture. Our division is committed to an open and democratic society. As part of our collective commitment to truth and reconciliation, and nation-to-nation building, we must make space for these perspectives and opinions in our schools. That's all for us this week. The Doc Project is produced by Allison Cook, Tanera McLean, Kevin Ball, Joan Weber, and me. Special thanks this week to Megan Fiddler and Jennifer Jeans from CBC Indigenous. Althea Manassan is our digital producer. Our senior producer is Sherry O'KK. I'm AC Rowe. Thanks for listening. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.